New Creation Realities. By Rod Anderson. Lesson 1. Father, again, we thank you for the Word of God. You said that the entrance of your Word brings light. It brings understanding to the simple. And again today, Father, as we begin this new course on the revelation of righteousness, on new creation realities, we're trusting you to speak to us. We're trusting you, Father, to speak to our hearts. We're going to do our part, Father, by opening our hearts. And we're going to listen and uh, to do our best to listen to your spirit. So we thank you, Father, for all that you want for us and all that you have for us in this. In Jesus' name, again, we make the decision. We will have ears to hear. We will have ears to hear. We will have ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord wants to say to us. So we trust you to help us with this now in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, this is our number one then on what we're calling new creation realities, the reality of the new creation. Now, this first outline or first page, lesson one, is I think seven or eight pages long. Uh, tons of uh, scripture. Um, and so I'm going to try to work to get through it. But let me just, first of all, I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. Uh, because this is the hallmark verse, of course, of what this course is named after. And I just want to read it a little bit in context. I'm actually going to start at the first verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. And we'll listen to what Paul is saying here. And then we'll jump down to another part. But let's try to set the, uh, like I said, set the, the course here for what this is all about. We, we are spirit beings. Let's remember that before we get started here. Remember the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians, God's word says, I pray that you might be sanctified holy. And that word holy there is W-H-O-L-L-Y. It means completely. He said, I pray that you might be sanctified or set apart completely spirit, soul, and body. And the reason I bring that up again is because in this course, we're going to have to understand just that again, that remember that we're all what we're called, what Bible colleges will call, we're triune beings. In other words, tripart. We're, we're made of three parts. We are a spirit, remember. We, the real you is a spirit. You have a soul, which is your mind, what you call commonly your mind, and you live in a body. So God is a spirit. When God speaks again, he speaks to your spirit. So we're going to talk in this course about some real truth that has occurred through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in particular, we're going to be talking about what God has done in your spirit so that you can really begin to identify with who you are in him as opposed to what your flesh used to be. So anyhow, let me just start in verse 1, 2 Corinthians 5. Paul said, For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed. Now, when he says tent, he's talking about your, your flesh and blood body, okay? That's referring to your body. He said, for we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed or dissolved, we have from God a building, a house not made with hands, that's eternal in the heavens. Here, indeed, in this present abode or body, we sigh and groan inwardly because we yearn to be clothed over 
we yearn to put on our celestial body like a garment to be fitted out with our heavenly dwelling. Verse 3, so that by putting it on, we may not be found naked or without a body. Verse 4, for while we are still in this tent, we groan under the burden and we sigh deeply, being weighed down, depressed, oppressed. Not that we want to put off the body, the clothing of the spirit, but rather that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal, our dying body, may be swallowed up by life after the resurrection. Verse 5, Now he who has fashioned us, preparing and making us fit for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the fulfillment of his promise. So then, verse 6, We are always full of good and hopeful and confident courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are abroad from the home with the Lord that has promised us, for we walk by faith. We regulate our lives and we conduct ourselves by our conviction or belief, respecting man's relationship to God and divine things with trust and holy fervor. Thus we walk not by sight or appearance, okay? Now again, I'm just reading that because I want you to hear how Paul is really speaking to this thing about this earthly body that you live in is longing to be clothed with this celestial body that we will have once we leave this planet Earth, okay? But in the meantime, now let's jump down to hear what he's going to get at here about who we are right now. Verse 14 says, let's start in verse 14 now. He says, for the love of Christ controls and urges and impels us because we are of the opinion and conviction that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that all those who live might live no longer to and for themselves, but to and for him who died and was raised again for their sake. Verse 16, consequently from now on, we estimate and regard no one from a purely human point of view in terms of natural standards of value. No, even though we once did estimate Christ from a human view, viewpoint and as a man, yet now we have such knowledge of him that we know him no longer in terms of the flesh. Now here's verse 17, which is again the, the really important verse for this whole course. Therefore, he said, if any person is engrafted in Christ, and that's speaking of all of you that have been born again, and that's all of us in this room, Therefore, if any person is engrafted in Christ the Messiah, he is a new creation, a new creature altogether. The old previous, now really listen to this, the old previous moral and spiritual condition has passed away. And it says, behold, the fresh and new has come. Hallelujah. And then he says in verse 18, but all things are from God who through Jesus Christ reconciled us to himself, received us into favor. Now listen to this. This is what God has done in Jesus Christ. Now, like I said, I know it's kind of slow as we start here, but I need you to really, really listen to these. He said, all these things, he said, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, a new creature altogether. Okay. He said in all in verse 18, but all these things are from God 
who through Jesus Christ reconciled us to himself, received us into favor, and brought us into harmony with himself. Now again, this is past tense, isn't it? It's what Paul is saying is this has already happened. You that are born again have already been brought into harmony with God himself. Hallelujah. You've been brought into harmony. This is why we're going to talk about righteousness so much this whole time. You've been brought into harmony with himself and he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation so that by word and deed we might aim to bring others into harmony with him. Verse 19, it was God personally present in Christ, reconciling and restoring the world to favor with himself, not counting up and holding against men their trespasses, but canceling them and committing to us this message of reconciliation of the restoration to favor. Hallelujah. Now this hopefully will remind you again of the love walk and some of the grace course that we already did as well. This whole truth that Paul's trying to scream into believers today and where people still have to understand today, what we have been given, all of us, is a ministry. Every single one of us has a ministry of reconciliation. Remember the word reconcile just simply means to bring together again. But it's a ministry that is supposed to communicate to people that, hey, God's not angry at the world anymore. Through Jesus Christ, any individual can be brought once again into perfect harmony with God again. Hallelujah. Now, like I said, we're going to really have to harp on this because like I said in the previous courses, you will be fought from all angles about that truth because you'll be thinking about all of the positions of your own behavior where you still fall short. In other words, you'll be so aware of how you still have shortcomings here and shortcomings there that you'll, if you're not careful, you'll concentrate more on that fact than upon this truth. He said, we have been brought in. We have been, it's past tense. In Christ, we have been brought into harmony with God. Hallelujah. That's why I love those verses like in Romans where it says, so then fearing nothing from God. Hallelujah. I mean, man, that's one of the greatest things you'll ever have to really get to the place where you're not afraid of God because you find out he's your very closest and best friend and has your best in, your best in his heart. Verse 20, so we are Christ's ambassadors, God making his appeal as it were through us. We, as Christ's personal representatives, beg you now for his sake to lay hold of this divine favor that's now being offered you and be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made Christ virtually to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in and through him we might become endued with viewed as being in and examples of the righteousness of God, what we ought to be approved and acceptable and in right relationship with him by his goodness. Hallelujah. A whole lot of verses. Okay, now let's go to the outline on here where it says lesson one at the top. Let me just read here as we begin. But again, the major scripture is 2 Corinthians five seventeen. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are brand new. Or in the Amplified, it says, Behold, the fresh and the new has come. And this is what we're going to work at. The church, I'm going to just begin to read. The church has been very strong in teaching man 
his need of righteousness. In other words, you need to be right, you need to be holy. And teaching them about their weakness and their inability to please God. The average Christian has been kept under condemnation as the church has never really taught who or what we are in Christ nor who we are in Christ and has never taught that all that Christ did for us is available to us now. The next paragraph, God himself is our very righteousness. We are the righteousness of God in him. We are receivers of the divine nature. We are receivers of the divine nature. That's what 1 Peter, like I said, this is just the beginning, remember? And 1 Peter says, you have become partakers of the divine nature. Again, it's easy to quote these things, but this is what we're going to try to take some time with. This stuff needs to get in your spirit. We are receivers of the divine nature the moment we accept Christ and come into the family of God. If we do live a life of weakness and defeat, it's because we do not know who or what we are in Christ Jesus. The great need of the church is still to know what we are in Christ and how the Father himself looks upon you. You must see how the Father himself looks upon you. The correct understanding of righteousness will be the primary cause of Satan's overthrow in your life. And I put down here, first, we must look at some foundation. Now, this is a definition I want you to know. The definition of righteousness, as far as the teaching is concerned, is this. The ability to stand in the presence of the Father God without any sense of guilt or inferiority. Now, just, again, just think about what we're really saying here. If God Almighty manifested in the room, if God himself manifested and stepped into this room, this is what we're talking about. We're talking about the ability to stand in the very presence of God without any sense of guilt or condemnation whatsoever. Now consider that. Consider really how difficult that would be for, for people to, to, to work in that arena whatsoever. But nevertheless, this is what God has done. And this is the definition I want you to know. But what we're going to get into, we're going to get into some scriptures, like I said, that are quite frankly, when I taught on grace and when I taught on the love walk, like I said, some of these scriptures uh, are, they appear too good to be true. Okay. I mean, they actually look too good to be true. So because of that, this first hour here, I'm going to talk to you on something we simply call the integrity of the word of God. In other words, let's, you have to believe the word of God before you can believe what God's word actually says. All right. So we're going to talk about the integrity of the Word of God. And like I said, this first lesson, uh, I'm going to go over a lot of scriptures real quick. I'm not going to take time to like preach or teach all these verses. They're all verses that we can teach a lot of information from. But uh, like I said, we're going to really start in the second hour with that. But let's, let's get this settled. God's Word is just that. It's not the Word of a man. It's the Word of God. And you have to believe in the integrity of it. In other words, you have to believe that heaven and earth may pass away, but this Word will never pass away. God's Word is eternal. All the heavens and the earth were made by this spoken Word of God. And this Word is what still upholds God, all, of the, all of planet earth today. Okay, so anyhow, let's just look at the word integrity, the terms defined. Integrity, this is just, this is just some definitions right here on the first page. The word integrity means to adhere to principle. It means honesty. It speaks to the quality of being unimpaired or perfect soundness. Point C, being of sound moral principle. Point D, entire and perfect condition. The word integrity comes from a Latin word, tangere, which simply means untouched, okay? 
Now, of course, in the Bible, when you see the word word, there's two major Greek words that you've heard of before, but we still need to go over them, which is logos and rhema. So I've just put in here for you just indeed just a definition out of Vine's Expository Dictionary. Logos is defined as the, re- the revealed will of God in its fullness. In other words, if I was to hold this Bible up, the entire book, this is the logos of God. Okay, this is the logos of God, the revealed will of God in its fullness. It's also the title of the Son of God. And Son of God, and as you can see here in the actual definition, it says the expression of thought, not the mere name of an object. Uh, as embodying a conception. But let's get to Rhema real quickly here. Rhema, as opposed to being the full Bible, speaks to this individual scripture. And I love, I've always loved, again, the, the, the definition of Rhema here in this. Let me just read it. Rhema denotes that which is spoken, which is uttered in speech or writing. The significance of Rhema as distinct from Logos is exemplified in the injunction to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Here, the reference is not to the whole Bible as such, but to the individual scripture, which the Spirit brings to our remembrance for use in time of need. A prerequisite being the regular storing of the mind with scripture. So like I said, this first hour, I'm, I'm, hey, I'm sorry, I I'm keep repeating myself, but we're just going to go through a lot of scripture here because before we get into all these real truths about who we are in Christ, I want you just to have it somehow, I'm trusting God by His Spirit to have this tattooed upon your heart and your mind and your body, that we're talking about God's Word. This is not the Word of a man. He that cometh to God must believe that He is, must believe that He is, and that He is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And again, we need to receive this. I'm going to quote it over and over again until you, well, until you get mad at me. (laughs) We need to receive this, these scriptures, not as the Word of men, But as it is in truth, like Peter said, the Word of God. In other words, if you're looking at this as a book, like I I used to say years ago, as long as this is just a book to you, it'll never change your life. Even if this is a holy book to you, it won't change your life. But the only time it begins to change your life is when it actually becomes God speaking to you. These are personal letters to you. And you hear me say over and over again, God is a God of individuality. He longs for you to read this and to discover in this who you are. Remember, like I said, Jesus Christ himself, who had stripped himself of his deity, all of his Godhead powers. You know, Jesus Christ himself walks into the synagogue. And remember, they would read at least three portions of Scripture per day in the synagogues in that time when you study the Judeo ethic of the day. And there was never, in other words, there were already pre-appointed times and pre-appointed scriptures. And just coincidentally, and God, you know, coincidentally, God has his son walk in on the day where the reading is out of Isaiah. And he picks up the book, finds the place where it is written and begins to read and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach this gospel to the poor, deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, the acceptable year of the Lord, and so on. And then remember, he sat down, and it says, and all the eyes of all those that were in the synagogue were fastened upon him. You have to understand just a little bit. Like I said, I, I'm, I don't want to, I want to rush through that because of what we need to get to. But in synagogues at that place, there was latticework fences that they were called fences, but they were latticework. All the women had to stay behind these fences. But all the men stood while these things were read. You know, the scroll, the Torah was brought out, and they'd read these, the scroll was unrolled, and they would read the portion. But nobody, but nobody sat because there were no chairs in the entire synagogue save one. There was one table, there was one chair, and there was one chalice or cup. 
And it was there symbolically because it was reserved for the Messiah. You have to understand what happened. Jesus read, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me. And he said, this day is this fulfilled in your hearing. And he sat down. <laughs> the only place to sit was the seat reserved for the Messiah. Well, that's why they freaked out and said, what is this dude doing? What is he doing? It blew their ever living mind. But he said, this day is this fulfilled in your hearing. And of course, they sought to stone him then, and, but he just walked out of their midst not being touched. But the point is, and you probably heard me say this before, but this is what's so important, what changed my life. Jesus Christ found in the scriptures where it was written about himself. And this upsets religious mindsets, I understand. But Jesus Christ, the Word of God says in Philippians, stripped himself, remember, of all of his Godhead powers. Is that correct? Right? You have to remember, he was 100% man, 100% God. You've heard me speak a little bit about what's called the principle. In a Bible college, they'll call it the principle of hypostasis. It speaks to the divinity or his deity versus his humanity. And you've heard me share this, but again, remember, this is why there's all these different, uh, the, way it, the way it refers to the Lord. It will say in places, Jesus Christ. Then it says, Christ Jesus. In other places, he's called the Son of Man. Then he's called the Son of God. And in a good Bible college, they'll teach you that every single time Jesus precedes Christ, it speaks of his humanity. Every single time it says Son of Man, it's speaking about his humanity. Every time it's Son of God, it's speaking of his deity or his divinity. Every time it's Christ before Jesus, it speaks of his deity. Now, again, why this gets so important is because the Son of God and Christ Jesus never worked one miracle. Do you hear me? You know how that upsets people when you say that sometimes? Every miracle was worked by the Son of Man and Jesus Christ. And again, this gets real crucial because he said, remember, the works that I do shall you do also, and greater works than these shall you do because I go unto the Father. But the point is, everything that he did, he did as a man. If he, if he would have worked miracles from his deity side. Well, what's the big deal with that? God, that's God in action. But as a man anointed with God, that's something else. But this is what's important because we're all men. We're humanity that have the same spirit in us that he had. But again, why I'm going through this over and over again is because Jesus Christ, this upsets people when I say it, but I believe if he had, if he indeed had to, like the Bible says, be tempted and tested and tried in all ways as we were. Now think about it. If he was God, well, is God going to be tempted with evil? No. God cannot be tempted with evil, neither will he tempt any man. Well, for Jesus to be tempted, for it to be a valid temptation or test, again, it would have had to be coming against his humanity, not his deity. But I'm saying, so if you carry that understanding of thinking all the way through, then you have to understand this. All of God's word works through the principle of revelation. Information that comes from heaven to the spirit of man. And uh, I, like I said, I'm taking too much time on this already. But what I want you, what I'm going to say is that you might argue with, and people get mad when I say this, but it's okay. I always jokingly say, well, you can wait till you get to heaven and you'll find out I'm right and you're wrong. I believe with my whole heart that Jesus discovered who he was at that moment in Luke 4. That when he opened the scroll and read that verse, 
The Spirit of God did the same thing to him that it does to us. It was revealed to him what his true mission and true calling was. And some people think that takes away from God's sovereignty when in actuality it adds to. It just reinforces the grace of God when you study it in line with the rest of Scripture. So I said all that to say this. This word, you have to quit looking at this as a book. You have to quit skimming it. You have to begin to truly meditate upon it. And this is why we pray before we read anytime and every time because you have to allow this to become God speaking to you. Because again, what we're going to look at in this whole course is the difference between substitution, or not the difference, we're going to look at the principle of substitution and identification. In other words, what Jesus Christ did for us, therefore Him being a substitute for us, and then discovering because of what He's done for us, who we now are in Him. And again, we'll, we're going to refer to the 100, there's 146 verses in the New Testament that again speak about in Him, in whom, in Christ, in Jesus, who we are in Him. We're clothed with Him, okay? That's why I read 2 Corinthians 5, the first few verses where Paul is talking about our earthly body yearns to be clothed with our celestial body because we are a spirit. Now, like I said, this is going to, we have to walk through this one gingerly because there's some, th there's some foundations that have to be laid before we start to get to some real meat. So now having said all that, let's get back to page two. <laughs> let's see how much I can get to here. We're going to go through a lot of scriptures to just let, and, and I'm trusting God again that the Spirit of God will speak these into your spirit so that you can see the integrity of this word, how all through scripture people understood these were not just sayings. This is God's word. Anyhow. So John 1, 1, right in the beginning, we all know it, but let's just turn there anyhow. I can, I've, got them all, I've got them all on the outline, but let's turn to John chapter 1. But John 1 says, In the beginning, before all time, was the Word, Christ. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. <laughs> Hallelujah. I was accused once when I first came to this nation many years ago. I, was, I, was, I never will forget, I didn't even know what it really meant. I was accused by some ministers of, they said, you canonize the word. I said, pardon me? And they said, you're canonizing the word. You're making the word, uh, you're putting the word in too important a position. And I remember these, this one theologian saying something to me about the book of Acts and some of the principles of prayer. And he said, young man, he said, you're making the mistake, he said, of, of teaching people that these things are prescriptive when in fact they're only descriptive. I said, what? Because remember, I wasn't a theologian. He said, you're saying that they're a prescription for life today. And he said, all that's passed away. He said, this is only descriptive of how things happened back then. And I remember looking at him, I said, well, sir, I said, that's, you have the right to your opinion. But I said, this to me is a, is a manual of life that I'm going to align myself with. All I can say is he's gone now and I'm still here. And I don't mean that pompously. But it says, in the beginning was the Word. I mean, how can you not canonize the Word? Because it says right here, the Word was God Himself. So when we're allowing this Word to speak to us, see, we're allowing God to speak to us. And we have to allow it. The more Word you have in you, the more God you have in you. This is why, again, he says, I want these things to be not upon tablets of stone, but to be written upon the fleshly tablets of your heart. In the beginning... Before all time was the Word, Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God Himself. Verse 2, He was present 
originally with God, now listen to verse three, all things were made and came into existence through him. Well, who's him? God. But who else is God? I want you to say the word. <laughs> the word. All right. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. Now listen to verse three. All things were made and came into existence through him. Right. But him and the word are equal. According to verse one. Right. All things were made and came into existence through him and without him was not even one thing made that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Hallelujah. I love what I'm going to read, verse 5. And the light shines on in the darkness, for the darkness has never overpowered it, put it out, absorbed it, or appropriated it, and is unreceptive to it. That's why I love the Amplified. <laughs> Okay, now back here, let's just look. Now, what we're looking at here on the outline is I actually didn't read this, the way these things printed out, unfortunately. It says the preeminence of the Word, and that's what we're looking at here. The Word of God is to have preeminence in all things. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Point two, Hebrews 11.3 says this. I love this verse. It says, through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Now, I've got to read that in the Amplified because of uh, how it speaks there. It's just an incredible good verse in the Amplified Bible. Hebrews 11.3 says this. Listen to this. Listen to how it reads. And this is a good, good rendition from Lou and Nita's lexicon. By faith, we understand that the worlds during the successive ages were framed. Listen to this phraseology now. By faith, we understand that the worlds during the successive ages were framed, fashioned, put in order and equipped for their intended purpose by the word of God so that what we see was not made out of things which are visible. You have to understand everything that you can see was made out of something that you cannot see. They have to understand why I'm trying to walk so carefully and take so much time with this because I'm, I'm wanting you to get past this hunk of meat in your ears until you begin to read and hear with your spirit. The spirit realm is a billion, quadrillion times more real than this realm. God is the creator, we are the creation. Is that correct? God is a spirit. That realm is the parent realm, right? Is that right? That's where everything began. We're the cartoon, <laughs> we're the drawing, we're the creation. That realm is reality. If somehow, some way, God actually did allow us the true gift of discerning the spirits, as it's exemplified when Elijah on the mountain, when Naaman, or rather when uh, Gehazi said, Lord, look at all the army of Syria round about us here. We're gonna die, we're gonna die. And Elijah, remember, prays, says, Father, God, open up his eyes that he might see. And of course, the, tr the true discerning of spirits is when you see into the realm of the spirit. And his eyes were opened and he saw the heavenly host. And he said, and Elijah looked at him and said, those that are with us be far more than those that are against us. See, right this second, if somehow, if by the Spirit of God, your eyes were opened and you actually saw what was above your head right here. If you were to see into reality, listen to me. If you were to see into reality right now, this 
has reality because it's the only realm we've ever lived and experienced. But if somehow by God's grace and spirit, we were allowed to see into that realm, the sense of that reality would become so great that it would cause this reality to become no reality by comparison. Now, I'm not getting out there in Lululand. <laughs> I'm just telling you, heaven is where everything is real. The realm of the spirit is the parent realm. So you have to meditate on this and get it because this is what affects your prayer life, affects everything about when you begin to do what Ephesians 5 says and copy God, be ye therefore imitators of God and copy him as well-beloved children and walk in love. When you begin to learn to speak like God tells you to speak and to pray, see, something has to happen where you're not moved by things in this reality because you become more aware of the fact that you're operating in supernatural laws now that are causing things to shift in true reality. It's like, again, when Daniel prayed. I think it was Daniel who prayed in a... I think it was yeah, Daniel who prayed, and remember, an angel came and said, from the first moment you spoke, your words were heard in heaven. He said, but I was challenged by the prince of Persia. And he said, I've come in response to your words. But it was a few weeks in coming, but heaven heard the words instantly. But that's where there was something that happened in this second heaven, this atmosphere that we do call a spiritual warfare, where other spirits were trying to keep back what God's answers were coming as far as the responses to prayer. This is why the Bible says we have to be followers of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. But something has to happen to where we begin to see what others don't see. I don't know how else to say it because I know it may sound wacky, but anybody, if you know me, you know I'm not wacky. But all I do know is this. When you begin to catch a hold of this stuff like this, you begin to pray from another plane. And you don't get moved by all this stuff. Everybody else gets shaken by what you see. And you've heard me share this before, but think about it. even the Greek word for man, anthropos, where we get the word anthropology. In its purest root form, the word anthropos, again, from the lexicons I have, it means, quote, one created looking up. It adds that. That's part of it. That amazed me when I saw that. One created looking up. In other words, man is intended to look up. So see what that ciphers into. Hell's job is to get us where our vision is de-elevated until we're looking at either the things round about us or we're totally cast down. But he does not want us to look up because for up is where our help comes from. But somehow, see, this is all the stuff, walk in the spirit. You can, otherwise he wouldn't have told us to. But again, you have to meditate on these things until they become not, I, said, I say again, not a teaching, but a lifestyle towards something that you embrace. And I'm telling you, you have to fight to embrace this because you have a million churches, Bible teachers, and everything else that will speak opposite of what this book actually teaches. And I'm not saying that to, to denigrate them. I'm just saying it's, there's like, you've heard me say this over and over again. In the Bible, the majority was always wrong. It's only the few clarion voices that actually get a hold of some of these things. This is why there's only been one Smith Wigglesworth and one John G. Lake. And, the people that we admire so much are very singular. There's not tons of them because it took somebody that had real Christian backbone to say, no matter what everybody else says, I'm going to take the word for what it says. Hallelujah. It's like Jesus when blind, you know, when, when uh, uh, the ruler of the house uh, came and said, you know, you don't, you, don't, you don't even come to my house, speak the word only, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus said, I've not seen such great faith. 
such great faith. There's little, all through the Bible, you see these expressions where it says little faith, no faith. He said, I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. And, and he called what this man believed great faith. Speak the word only, it's enough. He said, because I'm a man under authority, I say to one, go, and he goeth. I say to another one, come, and he cometh. In other words, what this man understood, the centurion, rather, I'm sorry. What this man understood was he, everybody says he understood authority, but really he understood submission. He understood that all things were made, that were made, were made by and through the Word of God. John 1, 3. Anything that was made, all things that were made, were made by and through Him, this Word. All things have come into being. Now again, verse 3 again, Hebrews 11. This, uh, just, just listen, let me quote it again in the Amplified. This invisible realm, you see. I mean, there's so many verses. You can go down further in Moses. It says, endured. Moses, it says, was not moved by Egypt's offers and Pharaoh's offers and everything. He said, because he, it says, Moses endured as seeing him who was invisible. Listen to that. Moses endured as seeing him who was invisible. How do you see somebody that's invisible? The only way you can see someone who is invisible is by faith. Anyhow, verse 3 again. By faith we understand that the worlds during the successive ages were framed, fashioned, put in order, and equipped for their intended purpose by the Word of God so that what we see was not made by those things that are visible. But this is what I want you to hear again about why the Word of God has to have preeminence in your life because every single one of you have a destiny. But see, this is what hit me about this. Your world... Put your name in there. In other words, by faith, you need to understand that you will be framed, fashioned, put in order, and equipped for your intended purpose by the Word of God. Hallelujah. By the Word of God. I say again, Jesus Christ discovered who He was in Scripture. You and I need to discover our true identity. Everybody else in this world will try to put an identity upon you. This book is where you discover your true identity and you find out who you are in Christ. I am a new creation in Christ Jesus. That's who I am. My body still has a mind of its own. That's what Paul said in Romans 7. My head still needs to have a lot of, my mind still needs to be renewed in a lot of areas. But what I, Rod, the real I, my spirit, the part of me that's eternal, has to come to grips with. I have to begin to line up with the spirit of the Word of God. God's Word is spirit, he said. So see, I know what my flesh says, and I know what my parents might say, or what some other outfit might say. But what I've had to learn to do is to see myself in here. I am the redeemed of the Lord. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I am the redeemed of the Lord. I am the healed of the Lord. I am the blessed of the Lord. I am somebody who can do all things through Christ. See, we're not, you have to hear all. You have to get the stuff in an order because otherwise, see, it'll come off sounding arrogant. A lot of people that only catch the formulas of these things always appear arrogant to others. And often they are. They're trying to appear spiritual. But again, the heart of what this truth really does, it drives you to your knees in humility because you begin to see what Christ has actually done for us. But I love verse 3 of Hebrews 11 because it, all those years ago it hit me. I heard the Lord say to me back then, He said, Son, the only way you'll ever be birthed into the fullness of my plan for you is when you begin to allow my word to frame, to fashion, to put in order, and to equip you for your intended purpose. Hallelujah. I remember John 15, when he took me then to John 15, Jesus said, now are you clean through the word? 
Now are you clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. See, God's word, and he's talking about pruning there, the I'm the vine, I'm the, bran you know, the, the branches in the vine. He said, whom God loves, he prunes, he trims. See, God's word in the new covenant, the way God prunes us so that we might bear more fruit is through the word. God's word is a sharp two-edged sword. It will come and begin to cut this off and cut that off. Because as we're going to see here also, the word of God is the discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Number three, the word is magnified even above his name. The name is the character of the person. Like I said, all these are verses that we could teach for an hour on. And this is why it's difficult because I'm on page four and I've got four more pages for this first lesson. <laughs> but the word is magnified. Now think about that. Psalm 138.2, David said, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy love and kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. That's incredible. We say it so glibly. But to understand, he said that you've magnified, you've caused your word to be magnified, to carry authority that even goes above your name. I mean, what, what do we do with verses like that? Do you just tear them out of the Bible or do we dare to believe it? Point four, the word of God is to be given first place in our lives. Proverbs 4, 20, 21, and 22. My son, attend to my words. Incline thine ear unto my son. You know what the word incline means there in a lexicon? It means to, to grasp and pull. My, one of my old Bible teachers, every time he, he used to use this, he'd do this as an illustration. Look at me. He'd do this. He said, you need to incline your ear. And he'd do this for so long. I'm not kidding you. This dude's right earlobe was about twice as, <laughs> twice as long as the left. He said, you need to incline your ear. I mean, you have to make yourself listen. And this is why you've heard me joke about like, have you ever walked into a house party or a group of people and you're having a conversation with somebody over here? but somebody walks in the door over there and they're talking to somebody else across the room and you really want to hear what they're saying? How many of you know you can be listening, you can have somebody right in front of you talking to you and you can be nodding your head going, uh-huh, uh-huh, but your ear is like, mm, focused out over there. You know, anybody ever done that? Of course you have. Don't look at me. Don't lie at me now. Don't, <laughs> we're, we're, we're in a place that's supposed to be true. So you, you can, that's why he said if you have ears to hear, but he said incline. Now listen to the verse again. I got to hurry. My son, attend to my words. Incline thine ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart. Let them not depart from thine eyes, but keep them. And man, it's important. Keep means just that. It means you have to put a guard around about. Keep them in the midst of your heart. Because they are life unto those that find them. And they are health to all their flesh. These sayings of God are life to those that find him. Point five, the word of God will not alter or change. Psalm 89, 34, my covenant will I not break, nor will I alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. Points, number six, Joshua 1, 8, of course, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, so that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then, for then, when you're a day and night meditator, for then, who will make their way prosperous? You will. Then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. You know, this is the only place in the Bible where the word success is. Right here. 
And success comes from meditation in the Word of God. Other scriptures dealing with the veracity of God's will, Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Hath he spoken, shall he not make it good? 1 Samuel 15, 29, and also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Turn the page. Psalm 33, 11, the counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. To all generations, I love that. The thoughts of his heart stand for all generations. Psalm 119, 89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. You know what I used to say a long time ago? And this is what I had a man say to me. The issue is not whether or not it's settled because you have to understand God's word, it's settled in heaven. It just needs to be settled in your heart. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. They continue this day according to thy ordinances, for all are thy servants. Everything that's been created is a servant to God. Proverbs 19, 21, there are many devices in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the counsel of the Lord, that shall stand. The counsel of the Lord is the only thing that will stand forever. In Ecclesiastes 3:14, Solomon said, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nothing nor anything taken from it, and God doeth it that men should fear before him. Hebrews 6:17, where in God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, that we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. James 1:17. every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So the summary thus far, God and his word are inseparable. The word does not change. God cannot and will not lie. Now, number two, the nature of the word of God. And I've got four minutes left, so I've got to scoot. Now, this is, again, important. It's, it's, you're all familiar with it, but we have to start the course with this. For Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. For the word that God speaks is alive. Hallelujah. Please let that be truth to you. For the, it's not a letter. It's alive. It's seed. Mark 4, Jesus called his word seed. He said the word, sower sows the word. Sower sows the seed, sower sows the word. God's word is seed. You have to plant it in its right environment and then do what it takes with any natural seed and it will produce. Rice produces rice, corn produces corn. Healing words in your spirit will produce healing in your flesh. Whatever God's word, whatever topic it is, you need to plant it in the soil of your heart. For the word that God speaks is alive and full of power, making it active, operative, energizing and effective. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating to the dividing line of the breath of life, the soul, and the immortal spirit, and of the joints and the marrow, that is, of the deepest parts of our nature. It exposes and sifts and analyzes and judges the very thoughts and purposes of the heart. And not a creature exists that is concealed from his sight, but all things are open, exposed, and naked, and defenseless to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Real quickly, the two-edged sword, I'm sorry about that down there in the bottom. I didn't even notice it until today where the, you know, the sentences aren't together. The two-edged sword was invented by the Roman army and became the nuclear weapon of its time. It was short, quick, decisive against heavy, cumbersome swords used by other armies. 
The two-edged sword revolutionized warfare in his time. And this is why the writer of Hebrews uses this phrase. He said, this word of God is like a two-edged sword. I mean, it actually will change the entire battle. He said, it, God's word has the power to, pen, to penetrate all pretense and sift the heart going to the softest and the deepest parts. Moffat's translation says, for the logos of God is a living thing. Williams' translation says, for God's message is alive and full of power and action. Tay's translation says, for whatever God says to us is full of living power. Everything is open to the word. So let's just pray. Father, again, we thank you, Lord, for this much. And again, Lord, you said that the entrance of your word brings light. It brings understanding to the simple. And I never grow weary of praying that. I pray, Father, that we would allow our minds and our spirits the luxury and the wonder of your word entering in and impacting us there, harpooning, as it were, into our spirit until we begin to become one with what your word says about us. So we trust you to help us with this, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.